Today in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we come to what is arguably the greatest chapter, not only in that letter, but actually in all of the scriptures. Someone has suggested that if the Bible is a crown of jewels, then the book of Romans is the most significant cluster in that crown. And if that's true, then the eighth chapter of Romans is the most significant gem in that cluster of jewels. In his commentary, Robert Mounts calls this chapter the inspirational highlight of the book of Romans. Now, Romans 8 has several fascinating features that we ought to take note of before we actually dive into the actual study of it. And I want to point out three of those to you so that as you read this chapter, as you meditate on it, as you study it, that you can be sensitive to these particular features that are in it. First, it is a chapter that emphasizes the status and the benefits that God provides to everyone who is reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And so as we'll see this morning, it begins in the first verse with no condemnation being announced for those who are in Christ. And then it ends in the last several verses with no separation from God for those who are in Jesus Christ. And from the beginning to the end, we see reasons given to us to be full of hope, joy, to be delivered from fear, because we are in Jesus Christ. This chapter also highlights the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians. Up to this point in his letter, Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit only four times. And yet, as we'll see as we work our way through Romans 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times in this one chapter. So he is emphasizing in this chapter what life in the Spirit of God looks like how Christians are to live as spirit-empowered, spirit-indwelt people. A third feature of this chapter that I want you to not miss is that there's not a command in it. There's no imperatives in Romans chapter 8. It's all instruction. It's all indicative. It's all emphasizing what God has given to us in the work of his son, the Lord Jesus, and through the ministry and the power granted to us by his spirit. So I would encourage you to read through Romans 8 over these next several weeks, multiple times. Meditate on Romans 8. I'd consider, encourage you to consider memorizing Romans 8. Some of you have already done that, and go back and refresh it and Get it clearly in your mind so that as we work our way through it, God willing, in the weeks ahead, these truths will be very close at hand in your thinking. Today, we're going to start our study by looking at the opening verses of the chapter, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. But in reality, we're only going to focus in on the first verse. And then God willing, the next time we'll come back and look at all four of these opening verses to see how Paul weaves in the argument to buttress the case that I want to set before us in this first verse this morning. So please, if you've not already done so, take a copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you'll find this on page 944, 944. And you hear the Word of God as I read it aloud, Romans chapter 8 from verse 1 through verse 4. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look again at that first verse where Paul announces, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ delivers Christians from all condemnation. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation that comes from God to you, ever, forever. That's the announcement that the Apostle Paul makes. And in one sense, this first verse of Romans 8 serves as the thesis of the whole chapter. In this verse, Paul recapitulates what he's been arguing so far in the letter, especially what he argues for from chapter 3, verse 21, down through the end of chapter 5. That's the section of the book where he drills down and teaches us the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And as I've tried to say multiple times, not just in this series on Romans, but as long as I've been pastor here, that this doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus is the heart of the gospel. If you don't get this right, it doesn't matter what you get right. If you misunderstand this, then you're going to misunderstand the very heart of what God has done for sinners like you and me in order to reconcile us to himself. Now, we teach the gospel here. We try to emphasize the gospel regularly. One way that we try to encourage people to remember the gospel is by focusing in on three questions. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's who he is, it's what he's done, and it's why that matters. So if you ask the question, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? Why is that important? Then answer those questions from the Bible. You're going to speak the gospel. You're going to have the gospel outlined in your mind because Jesus is the eternal son of God who became a man. God sent him into the world on a rescue mission for people like you and me. What did he do? Well, he lived a life of complete obedience to God's commandments. He never once sinned. He earned righteousness, human righteousness, because he was fully human. And then he died on the cross. He laid down his life as if he were a sinner. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't have any sins of his own to atone for, but he took the sins of his people upon himself. And he atoned for our sins by suffering and dying on the cross. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty right now. He's waiting for the day when he will return. That's what he's done. Why is that important? That all happened 2,000 years ago. It's important because you and I are sinners. We've been made by God, for God, and God requires of us to bear his image in the world well, to live according to his standards, and we haven't done that. Nobody in this room has done that. Nobody you know has done that. We have all sinned against God. And our only hope is that God will save us, that God will rescue us, and that's precisely what he has provided in Jesus Christ. So this is the best news in the world. This is 
gospel. This is good news. The righteousness that God requires of the people he has created in his image, he provides for us. And he does it in his son, the Lord Jesus. Paul has emphasized this in that section on justification by faith time and time again. For example, in chapter 3, verse 22, he says that this righteousness that we need, that we can't get by trying to do better, by keeping the commandments, by turning over new leaves, this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here we are, every one of us in this room owes righteousness to God, not just spotty righteousness, not start and stop righteousness, complete righteousness. That's what you owe, that's what I owe. And none of us, none of us can pay it. None of us can do it. But Jesus has done it. He is the righteousness that God provides by living a life of complete obedience to God's commandments. Paul goes on in Romans 3.24 to say that those who believe in Christ are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we get in on what Jesus has done by keeping God's commandments perfectly and then dying on the cross to redeem, to purchase sinners for himself. We get in on it by grace. You see, there's not a Christian in the world that can say, you know, I was smart enough to trust Jesus. Or I just decided that, you know, I wasn't going to live like my brother anymore. I was going to become a Christian. And, and, you know, if he would just be like me. Every Christian you know, every Christian that has ever lived became a Christian by God's grace. It's God. It's God. And so because that is true, you know what that means? Is that nobody's beyond hope. Now, I hope there's nobody here this morning that thinks you're beyond hope. But if that's true, it could be. Friend, you need to hear that the way God saves sinners is completely by grace and it's not dependent upon you. And there's grace enough for you in Jesus Christ. You receive Christ, His righteousness, His salvation by trusting, not by doing. Not by turning over a new leaf. Not by keeping certain rules. But by acknowledging Jesus Christ is Lord and Casting yourself on him. If you've never trusted him before today, trust him now. He's a great savior. He'll save you. That's why God sent him into the world. That's why Christ was born. He came in order to save sinners like you and me. And he has done that by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Paul makes this so clear earlier in Romans. We've seen it already in chapter 4 when he says it's not the one who works that gets this righteousness. His wages are counted to him, not as a gift, but as this due. So, you know, if you did good things, and you say, well, hey, man, I go to church and I pay my tithe and I do this and I do that. Sure, God's going to accept me. No, no, you, you, you work. You get what you work for because you've worked. What we get in Christ is grace. It's a gift. It's free. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. I love the phrase in Romans 4, 5. Paul says, to the one who does not work, in other words, you're not counting on your obedience, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. And that's amazing. 
He doesn't wait for you to clean up your act to justify you. He justifies ungodly people. And when he does that, he doesn't leave them ungodly. He turns us. He changes us. He sets up his residence within us. His kingdom comes in us. And we begin to live differently. We begin to grow in our awareness of, our love for the rules of his house. And we start living more and more in conformity with those rules as we grow in conformity with his son, the Lord Jesus. Chapter 5, Paul talks about the way Christ did everything Adam failed to do. So the first Adam God created, he was representing the human race. He fell in his fall. We all sinned. So he sent Christ as the second Adam and the Lord Jesus did everything the first Adam didn't do. And because of Christ being united to him, we get all the benefits of everything that he earned. And then in chapter 6 and 7, Paul addresses two questions. If justification is by grace through faith, if this salvation, Paul, comes to us not because of anything we deserve, not because of anything we do, then, hey, why don't we just sin? This is sin so grace can abound, right? If it's all grace, then it doesn't matter how I live. Paul says, absolutely not. You don't understand the first thing about grace if that's the way you're reasoning. So chapter 6, he knocks that notion in the head. And then chapter 7, well, what about the law? Paul, you say we can't get righteousness by the law, so is the law sinful? No, the law is not sinful. He explains the role and purpose of the law in chapter 7. And then we come to our text, Romans 8.1 where he makes this grand announcement, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about Romans 8.1. He writes, This is the greatest good news that has ever come into the world. It is the heart and soul and essence of the Christian gospel. I want to consider this wonderful summary of the gospel by looking first at its connection to what Paul has previously written. And then secondly, to ask exactly what does he mean by no condemnation? And then thirdly, to consider, well, for whom is this no condemnation true? So three headings to this sermon this morning. The first is, what is the connection to the context? Paul says, well, there is therefore, therefore. Now, when you see therefore in Scripture, what are you supposed to do? You ask, what's it there for, right? Okay, what, what's the connection? Well, he's obviously drawing an inference from what he has previously written. But the question is this, which part of his previous writing in this letter does Paul have in mind that he's taking this inference from? Well, that's a hard question to answer. And good, good, trustworthy commentators recognize the difficulty and you can find them lining up in different positions trying to understand it. I appreciate what John Murray says. He says, what part of the preceding context is the basis of this inference? This is a difficult question on which interpreters greatly differ. And I love John Murray and I disagree with him what he concludes about this too, but, but I do so, I hope, in the same humility that he's showing by recognizing that good people disagree. 
I will tell you that I've been convinced by Martin Lloyd-Jones's analysis of how this portion of the letter flows from what's gone before. Now, I should also tell you that I disagree with what Martin Lloyd-Jones does with Romans 7. And so I didn't quote him uh, in our study through Romans 7 because I, I, think, I think he was wrong on that. And you know, who am I to say that about Martin Lloyd-Jones, except I'm standing on the shoulders of others who uh, have acknowledged that about him as well. But his assessment of how the argument flows is convincing to me. Romans 8 takes up the argument that Paul was making in chapters, chapter 5. So he's giving us justification by faith, Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5. And then chapter 6 is like a parenthesis. Well, what about personal holiness? If it's all grace, then can't we just give ourselves over to sin? So Paul addresses that question by way of parenthetical exposition in Romans 6. And then chapter 7 takes up another question. What about the law? What about the law? Another parenthesis, another exposition, wonderful insights in chapter 6 and 7. But then in chapter 8, if you take this analysis, you see Paul is coming back to the argument he's been making in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Therefore, is drawing an implication from justification by grace through faith. Now, what helped me is to take Romans 5 and read it straight through and then go immediately to Romans 8 and just kind of set Romans 6 and 7 aside as parentheses. And if you do that, I think you'll understand at least the force of the argument to see how Paul flows from Romans 3, 4, and 5 to 8 with parentheses in chapters 6 and 7. Let me just do that real quickly. If you look at Romans 5, I turn to Romans 5, 18. We'll just start at the end of that chapter. And I'm going to read it straight through, then we're going to go to chapter 8. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see there, he's announcing what he's going to deal with in the parentheses. So that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now go to chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's drawing a very important inference, a necessary inference that he wants to highlight that is built upon this doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He's explained that doctrine in some detail in chapters 3 through 5. And now he's saying because believers are justified by God's grace as they trust in the Lord Jesus, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, that shows us the context and, and the flow of the apostles' thinking that picks up here in Romans 8. But what exactly is being affirmed in verse 1? I mean, what is the, the point? And Paul makes a big deal out of it, the way he uses the language to elevate this idea of no condemnation. So what exactly is meant by saying there's therefore now no condemnation. Well, brothers and sisters, this is such an important point 
it's impossible for me to exaggerate it. In fact, it doesn't matter how clear I might be, it doesn't matter how much emphasis I might give to it, it will not measure up to the significance of the point that the Apostle Paul is making in this phrase. Paul writes this, not merely as a matter of theology, it is that, but he writes this as a point of doxology, praise. Um, it, th- this, this is shouting ground, what Paul says here about no condemnation. Condemnation is language that comes from the courtroom. Its opposite is justification, which is one more argument for this analysis that Paul is drawing from the doctrine of justification to emphasize this summary statement. The word condemnation means to judge someone as definitely guilty and therefore liable to punishment. It means to condemn, to render a verdict of guilt and condemnation. And that's the situation of everybody by nature. I mean, that's, that was true of you when you were born. That was true of me when I was born. Everybody is born into the world sinful and therefore under condemnation. Now, this is a hard thought for some. I mean, we've just prayed for two precious babies born into this congregation. I mean, they're precious. They're precious, but they're born into a world that is sinful. They're born into a race of humanity that is sinful. And they must be rescued from their sin and this status of condemnation. Paul has spent a large part of his letter, indeed from chapter 1 verse 18 down through chapter 3 verse 20, making this very point. He doesn't want anybody to miss this, to understand what our situation is by nature. By nature, we're not neutral with God. By nature, we're opposed to God and liable to His wrath because we're under condemnation. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. This is where he launches into it. He's announced the gospel. So that's the theme of the letter. And then he immediately, he immediately starts making the case of why we need the gospel. Verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppression of truth. That's what the world has participated in. That's what we enter into by nature. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 19. As he begins to bring this portion of his argument to a conclusion, about the universality of sin. He says, now we know, 3.19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see the point he's making? What I'm writing here about sin, the universality of sin, affects everybody. The whole world is accountable to God. Every mouth must be stopped. What does he mean by that? The, The image is the courtroom. And there's charges being brought. And the defendant wants to plead his case. But after the prosecutor, the Apostle Paul, has finished by showing the purpose of God's law, and that law has been held up, that law condemns the defendant can only sit down and cover his mouth 
He has no argument. His mouth is stopped. His only hope is mercy. Mercy. We see in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. This is true of everybody you know. It's true of you by nature. We come into this world sinful, under condemnation. We saw this earlier. I read it in Romans 5.18 when Paul says that Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men. Now this is an important point. And one reason that people don't appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is provided by that gospel is because they fail to appreciate or really believe this truth about themselves. They do not want to face the fact that before God they're guilty. Before God by nature they're under His condemnation. This is what keeps many people from turning from their sin and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord right now. It's because they either do not understand their situation before God under condemnation, or they refuse to believe what the Bible says about their situation under God and under condemnation. And they would prefer to think better of themselves as they might frame it. This teaching is what causes some Christians to become dissatisfied with the gospel. So that they begin to subtly add things to it to make it more attractive or more acceptable, practical to people. This is what's underneath the error of the prosperity gospel. That way of teaching about Christ that says, if you believe what we tell you you ought to believe, well then, God has for you health and wealth. And you'll get in on some really good things that will make your life practically so much better. This teaching, being misunderstood, is what's behind the increasingly evident social justice gospel that is infiltrating heretofore trustworthy churches and organizations. For example... Dehati Lewis is vice president of the North American Mission Board. Recently, he has taught that the gospel is about what he calls holistic restoration that has four pillars to it. It includes being spiritually restored to God, the way I've just described it. But he says that's only one-fourth of the gospel. He says the gospel also provides emotional restoration, economic restoration, social restoration. He says this, and I quote, the gospel is not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration. In other words, having your sins forgiven, being justified before God in his courtroom is simply not enough. It is only part of the gospel. It's not good news. The good news of being justified before God must have added to it these spiritual, to the spiritual blessings, the economic, emotional, and social blessings, or else it's not good news. Now listen, the, 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 
the gospel of Jesus most certainly has implications for every area of life. When you get reconciled to God through faith in Christ, there's not any area of your life that is off limits to the lordship of Jesus. When his kingdom comes in power in your life, then you are now involved in a new way of living. Your citizenship is in heaven and you spend the rest of your life growing, adapting, becoming more conformed to Jesus by living according to his will. The way that he works in you by the ministry of his spirit and word bring real practical changes to the way you think, the way you feel, how you earn and save and spend and give your money, and how you relate to other people. But we must be clear that the heart of the gospel and what makes it good news is none of those things. What makes the gospel good news is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our God's reconciled. Our sins are forgiven. We're brought into fellowship with our Creator. The gavel falls and it's not guilty. That's amazing. To say that's not good news. Unless you get some economic restoration. Is heresy. The gospel meets our deepest, most profound and pressing needs. It removes us from the state of condemnation, removing us from the liability of God's wrath and reconciles us to our God. This is what Paul is asserting in verse 1. And note that he emphasizes that this is something that is experienced here and now. He says, there's Therefore, now, no condemnation. Now is the present reality. Now, no condemnation. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you start trusting Jesus Christ from your heart and mind, in that instant, you are immediately no longer under God's condemnation. Brothers and sisters, what that means is when we trust Christ, that moment we are justified in the courtroom of heaven. This means God, this means that God has no more judgments against you. You're no longer condemned for your sin. The situation you were born into, which you lived in as a part of the fallen human race, is no longer your situation. Your status has changed before God. You're justified, and you're justified right now. You have no condemnation being brought against you by God. You can never be executed for the crimes that you have committed against God. Why? Because he has pardoned you. And he's pardoned you through his son, the Lord Jesus. This is a glorious, life-giving, conscience-cleansing, spirit-liberating truth. And we must see it. We need to grow in our understanding of it. We must believe it. The sin that remains in every Christian, is real. And we can be tempted sometimes by that remaining sin to let it overwhelm us, to be overwhelmed with a sense of guilt before God because we are aware of sin that remains in us. But God says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've considered the context. We've considered the meaning. Let's finally notice 
or whom is this true? Who can say with Paul, there's no condemnation from God against me? Well, he says, those who are in Christ Jesus can say that. Not everybody. Not everybody. There are a lot of people that like to think this is how God regards everybody. They want to believe that because they're not of a certain category of sinner, that surely God cannot have any angst against them, any condemnation over their lives. But Paul's very clear. There's no condemnation for certain people, those people, those who are in Christ Jesus. What's he mean by that? Those who are united to Christ. Those who once were under condemnation, but when Christ came, they have gotten in on Christ so that now then there's nothing but reconciliation with God. There's nothing but unity. Nothing but acceptance. Paul's elaborated this idea of union with Christ in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. There he says, we're united to Christ in his life. We're united to Christ in his death. We're united to Christ in his resurrection. What that means as he elaborates it is that because we are in Christ, the life that Christ lived is my life. His obedience to the commandments. It's my obedience. It belongs to me now. The death he died for sin that death that every one of us here would have to look forward to, anticipate, to pay for our own sins eternally as the eternal Son of God. He experienced that. He suffered that death. That is my death. The condemnation that the Son of God underwent on the cross when He became the sin bearer and atoned for the sins of His people, that's my condemnation. It has happened. It's been satisfied and done away with. That's why. There's now therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ today. Because we were condemned. In him. I love the line of that old hymn by Philip Bliss. It says bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. With his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. His resurrection to eternal life is our resurrection. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All of us will experience the end of this life one day. In Christ. In Christ, we will be raised forever, never to die again. It's all because of Christ. And it's all because we are in Christ. So the question is, how do you get in Christ? How does a person go from a state of condemnation to a state of no condemnation by getting into Christ? There's only one way to get in Christ. It's not by doing. Not by performing. It's by trusting. You turn from your sin. You acknowledge that the ground you've been standing on is quicksand. It's, it's rebellion. And you renounce that. And you bow to Jesus. And, and you call him Lord. And you trust Him. And when you trust Him, 
It is through faith that you are united to Him. You become in Christ. And these blessings of the gospel, this salvation becomes yours because of Christ. And now your union with Him. Don't you want to be free from condemnation? Don't you want to have the assurance that there's no condemnation coming from heaven against you? Don't you want to know that that's true? And don't you want to experience that subjectively, personally, in your own life? How can you do that when you are honest enough to admit that every sin deserves damnation? And you know that sin still remains in you. How can you come to this point where you can say with Paul, there's therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. You come to that by taking God at His word. Trust Jesus Christ as Lord. And in Christ, believe what God says is true about all who are united to Him by faith. I know of no greater truth than this declaration by the Apostle Paul. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Being united to Christ by faith delivers us from condemnation forever. So brothers and sisters, remember this. Believe this. This is what will help us to sleep at night whenever your sin comes back to your mind. And you consider what God requires and you consider what you have supplied and you think, oh, it's not enough. And you're right, it's not enough. But that's not the whole story. Jesus has done everything that is enough. He has fully satisfied all of God's requirements. And in Him, we are counted righteous. So remember Christ Christ who paid for every last one of your sins. Not only your past sins, not only your present sins, but in ways that we can't fully fathom. Our future sins, the Lord Jesus has satisfied for by His life and death. He was condemned for them all. So trust Him and believe Him. Believe this truth and let your conscience soar to heights of freedom that cannot be attained any other way. This truth will serve you so well when life gets hard. When you lose your job and you begin to think about your sin. And you, I wonder if God's punishing me for my sin. I wonder if He's condemning me for my sin. No. He might be disciplining you. You can be sure whatever He's doing, He's doing for your good. And you can be sure there's no condemnation. Because you're in Christ Jesus. When you're diagnosed with that fatal disease. And you have that nagging thought that tempts you. Well, of course. I deserve this. My sin against God is so wicked. Brothers and sisters, there's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever God's doing in your sickness. He's not condemning you. For your sin. When dearest friends and loved ones desert you. You're tempted to think. That your hardships. Are part of 
God's condemnation. Remember this truth. Let this truth wash over you. Let this truth strengthen you and provide ballast for you and your ship when it gets tossed and turned about in the difficult seas of this life. And trust God rather than yourself. I love what Robert Mounts says on this. He writes, It follows that if condemnation as an objective reality has been removed, and it has, there's no legitimate place for condemnation as a subjective experience. If it's true, believe it. If it's true and it doesn't feel true, then recognize that you need to get your feelings hitched to truth so that you can start feeling it. Mounts goes on to insist on feeling guilty is just another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. Isn't that foolish? (laughs) None of us would ever say we're going to do that. But whenever we allow this sense of guilt and condemnation to come into our thinking, then we are in reality exalting ourselves above what God has clearly revealed in his word. And we're thinking that somehow this ought to go along with our awareness of our own sin. So are you trusting Jesus Christ? Are you in him? If you're in him, then hear this pronouncement of your God. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. We, it, it's almost beyond our ability to believe. We wouldn't dare believe it if you'd not revealed it. But you've revealed it, and so our desire is to believe it, to take you at your word, and not at all to turn this into some kind of occasion to give in to sin, to go on sinning. But we want to be amazed in fresh ways that you have loved us with this kind of love, that Jesus has done everything necessary so that in him we stand before you today as free people. I pray for those that don't know this. Lord, they still feel condemned because they are condemned. Would you not rescue them today? Create faith in them today. Cause them like little children to trust you, to believe you, to quit trusting themselves and to experience this complete forgiveness, this new life, this justification that is in Jesus Christ. We ask you to do this in his name. Amen.